I'm using the Pew Bible if you want to follow along uh, with the, uh, the Bible in front of you in the back of the pews. It's page 1067. Uh, we're going to do Hebrews 11, verse 1, through Hebrews 12, verse 3. This is a long passage. Uh, it, it's a long passage, so I'm not going to read it. We'll, we'll read it as, as we work through it. Um, but uh, it's one of the more famous passages in the New Testament. So I've, been, I've enjoyed uh, studying this and reading it, um, preparing it. I hope you guys uh, are, are blessed by this passage in the same way that I was this morning. Before we get started, let's, just, let's open up with a word of prayer. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We ask that it would do what only your word can do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so over the past 20 years, uh, as we all know and have experienced, there have been some like major uh, leaps in technology. Uh, there, there's just it's continuing to grow and it's continuing to grow and grow and grow, and it's changed the way that we respond to certain situations. So 20 years ago, if you were to get a knock on the door or a ring on the doorbell, you would like be excited about it. You'd be like, hey, someone's here. Who could it be? You'd run to the door to go find out uh, who it is, all excited about it, and we'd swing that door open with the greatest confidence, ready to welcome in uh, wh whoever would be at the door. And today, we have cell phones where you can easily text, you can easily call, so you can, in, in seconds, shoot someone a message and say, hey, I'm about to stop by the house, or, or give a call and let them know. So if you get a knock, uh, or a ring on your doorbell today, and you weren't expecting anyone, the only logical conclusion is that there's absolutely a band of miscreants and thieves and robbers at the door ready to come take everything you own and kidnap the family. Uh, and you hear that doorbell ring, your ears kind of perk up like dogs, and it's like, shh, 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 somebody's here. Don't move. Somebody's at the door. Then you kind of do that army crawl on the ground, like, like peeking through the window. <laughs> Who's at my house? And uh, that, that's our response. And this, this happened to us one night with me and Laura, and we went through the whole, like, who is it? Who could it be? And we opened the door, and it was just Sylvia Watts with uh, a pastor appreciation gift for us. So they're, they're not always there to harm you. Uh, uh, so so why, why do we feel uncertain in that scenario? It's because we can't see who's behind the door, right? Like, and, and even if, if your reaction in that moment isn't as dramatic as I just described it, there's still probably a little part of you that's like, mm, we weren't expecting anyone. Who, who's at the door? Uh, especially if it's late at night because you can't see who's uh, behind it and your guard goes up a little bit because you're not going to fully put your faith in a person that you can't see. But what our passage this morning shows us is that for the Christian life, it's the exact opposite. We have faith in a God that we have not laid eyes on. We have faith in the resurrection of that God that we were not witnesses to. We have faith that the blood of that God is sufficient to cover up our sins. We have faith that He and He alone has redeemed our souls. We have faith and hope for a future eternity in the kingdom of heaven, in the very presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I think what this passage reminds us, Hebrews 11, is that we can confidently have faith in God because He has proven time and time again that He keeps His promises 
and he has proven that he is absolutely good. So verse 1, it tells us exactly what our faith is. It's understood to be like the definition of faith in the New Testament. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Our faith as believers, it is real to us. It is a reality, a reality to us. This faith we have, it's the only faith we have. We build our lives around it. The decisions that we make in our life is influenced uh, by this faith. There's no other God for us. We have no other Lord. Uh, We serve no other king. We wake up each day in this real faith. We live each day in this real faith. We go to sleep each night in this real faith. And the faith that we have in God and his word is what makes something that's absolutely invisible to us absolutely real. And it makes the future present today. It's the reality of what is hoped for. In other words, right now, in this moment, uh, for those of us who are believers, we believers are holding in our hearts the coming kingdom of God. There's a a popular quote from C.S. Lewis that uh, I think fits this idea well. I'm sure you've heard it, uh, most of you. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. So if we were to step outside right now, we would see and experience that the sun in the sky has illuminated the world around us, allowing us to see and experience what would be invisible if the sun wasn't there. And in this way, God, through his word and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, he has illuminated the world around us, allowing us to see what would be invisible without it. Verse 3, he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. No one witnessed God creating the heavens and the earth. No one can, can bust out an old dusty VHS tape and say, Hey, look, I got a home video of God creating everything. Uh, we, we, we haven't seen it. No one has seen it. But by faith, in this faith, we are certain that he did it. We have faith that there is no other way that it was done apart from him. And God creating the world, it is such a major foundation uh, to what we believe because without it, really nothing else in the Bible would make sense. Because in faith, we believe if God is powerful enough to create the entire universe out of nothing, then he is powerful enough to flood the whole earth and save one family. He is powerful enough to part the Red Sea. He's powerful enough to burn a bush without the bush being consumed. He's powerful enough to preserve a man's life in the belly of a fish for three days. He's powerful enough to make the sun stop its rotation. He's powerful enough to leave heaven and to be born himself of a virgin. He's strong enough to turn water into wine, to make paralyzed men walk, to make dead men come alive. Powerful enough to die himself and he himself be resurrected. And he's powerful enough to save us from our sins and to redeem our souls. Our faith, it makes the invisible visible. It makes the future present. It makes our hope a reality, and that's only possible because the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is alive. 
He is real. He is good. He is with us. And what we believe, like the faith that's talked about in this passage, what we believe is not just some suspicion that we have. It's not like this warm, fuzzy feeling that we've come up with. It's not positive thinking or good vibes. It's not manifestation or wishing. It's not the universe telling us something, making things work out. Our faith in Christ is a reality of what we hope for. It's proof of what is invisible, and it's in Christ alone. I don't know if you, if you guys have heard of Pascal's wager. Uh, Pascal, he was a French philosopher in the 17th century, and he had an argument known as Pascal's wager uh, that I, I've always been a little bothered with when I've heard it used. Uh, and that argument is this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this a bit. He goes like this, either God is real or he isn't. There's no in-between, so everybody has to make a wager on what they believe. If you wager that God is real and you find out that you were wrong, well, you haven't lost much. But if you wager that he's not real and you find out that he is, then you have lost much. In other words, he's saying it's better to believe and find out you're wrong than to not believe and find out that you're wrong. That, that kind of thinking, it's, it's not really sat well with me because I don't think it reflects what true faith in Jesus is. We don't go to Christ with the attitude, hey, I think you could be real. I think you're probably real. I mean, it's definitely possible that you're real, and I would rather play it safe. So here's three-fourths of my heart. I, I, I think that should cover me. And if I'm wrong, at least I played it safe. Our faith in Christ as Lord is a faith on bended knee. It's a faith that is humbled, a faith that is submitted, a faith that is committed, recognizing our life is hopeless apart from Him. And we are slaves to our sin and our brokenness apart from Him. Our faith in Him, it's freeing, it's liberating, it is saving, and there's no other faith for us. There's no alternative. There's no faith in Him just because He might be real and it's a safe choice. We have faith because we're confident that He is real and that He is good, and we're confident in the promises that He's made to us. Our faith in Christ, it's a reality of what we hope for. It's proof of what is invisible. If you look at the end of verse 2, he says, For by this our ancestors were approved. He's talking about God's people. By this the ancestors, the Old Testament saints, the people before Christ, they were approved. He's saying... They believed God and His promises, and the life they lived and their choices and their actions, they reflected what they believed to be true. And because of that faith, they were approved by God. And then starting in, in verse 4, through the whole rest of the chapter, uh, the author, he begins a list, perhaps the most famous list uh, in the Bible, and he is referencing Old Testament believers showing that they lived by faith. And also that they endured in that faith. If you remember last week, looking at the end of chapter 10, there were Jewish Christians who were living in this time, uh, and they were going through a tough time specifically because of their faith in Christ. Uh, and they were having this temptation to go back to the Old Testament Jewish practices. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 is saying, don't do it. It's not worth it. Keep the faith. Press on. Endure. Keep the faith. Don't give up. And then here in chapter 11, he's pointing to them, to the ancestors of the faith, saying, look at them. Look what they did. They lived by faith. They endured in that faith. They kept that faith until the very end, followed their footsteps. 
Keep the faith. He starts out with Abel. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. There's a popular story uh, from Genesis, one we probably all know. The first two children of Adam and Eve, Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd, uh, and they both gave to the Lord. But the only thing Cain gave was a work of his flesh and nothing more. The letter in Jude in the New Testament says, Woe to those who walk in the way of Cain. But Abel, he gave his best. And what his best was, really, at the end of the day, at the core of it, His best was his heart, and he gave it in faith. And that is exactly what God has always wanted, the heart. Not a work of the flesh, but the heart. And in jealousy, Cain, he killed Abel. But what the author here is telling us is that even though Abel died that day, he still speaks to us through his faith. In other words, he's not here, but we will always have his example of faithfulness. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. Enoch's story is this uniquely short story with a unique ending. In Genesis 5, uh, verse 21, it says, Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not there because God took him. So Genesis 5, he gives this this genealogy starting with Adam. Now, each person in this short story, uh, in this genealogy, it ends the same way with the words, and he died. Each person except Enoch, he didn't die. God took him away, and all we know about Enoch is that he walked with God, and he did it in faith. And Hebrews here tells us that that faith was pleasing to God, and God blessed him because of it by keeping him from death. Verse 6 says, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's important to remember that whatever life Enoch lived, he wasn't perfect. He was still a sinner, and the earthly works that he did, it would not have earned God's favor. But his faith in God did. His trust in God did. And still true today, no good deed on its own earns God's favor. Only faith can be pleasing to him. And a faith that is pleasing to him will be a faith that produces good works. And that kind of life uh, will be accompanied by action that's done in good faith. And A life in faith is guaranteed a life that God will bless. Verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. No, Noah's story in, in in this passage, I think, might be the most fascinating example of faith that we have. Noah, he builds this 500 foot long boat for water that didn't even exist yet. And everyone looked at him like he was the town crazy person, right? I mean, everyone scoffed at him and laughed at him and mocked him, but he was still faithful. God promised a flood, and he prepared for the flood in the exact way God commanded. 
He believed that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. And he built this ark in faith. And genuine faith, real faith in Christ, it will be proven by faithful action. There will be something about the life of believers that says, I'm a believer. In building this ark, Noah's hope of God's future salvation from that flood, it was a present reality to him. Every day that he worked, every day that he built, every day that his hands were sore, he was doing it knowing in that moment that God is going to save him. And that's what he believed. Verses 8 through 12, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to, to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going, and by faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, she received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of the sand along the seashore." God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he makes this covenant with him. He makes this promise with him, and he makes this promise to Abraham to turn him into a great nation. He promised that his children would outnumber the stars. He promised that Abraham would be blessed. Uh, He promised Abraham's children would turn not just into any group of people, but that they would be, in fact, God's people. And God made these promises to Abraham, and he commanded him to go to this new land, a land he had never been before. And if you've ever moved to a new place, a place that you've never been before, you know that it can be scary. When Laura and I, when we first moved here to Aiken, it was scary. It's scary to go somewhere you've never been. Uh, But Abraham did it. He obeyed. And Paul tells us in Romans 4, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, It wasn't Abraham's works that made him righteous. It was his faith. It was his belief in what God had promised. And this is true today as it was then. We believe God. He is who he says he is. We believe Jesus is Lord. We believe salvation is in him alone, by his blood alone. We believe in his death, his burial, his resurrection. We believe in God, and it is in this faith alone that we are made righteous. God, he, he promised to Sarah that she would have a son at 90 years old. Just let that, that sink in for a minute. 90 years old, she gets told she's going to have a son. And when she heard it, all she could do was laugh. But that laughter, it turned to faith, and she believed that God would do what her body was past the point of doing. And her hope for the future of her son, Isaac, at 90 years old, became a present reality to her. Verses 13 and 14, I think, are really important here. It says, These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Every person 
that's listed in this passage, every single one, they died in the faith. They died believing God was going to keep a promise that they had not seen fulfilled yet. A Messiah was promised all throughout the Old Testament, and they never saw a Messiah, but they still believed. They knew the earth was not their eternal home. They never once saw heaven, but they believed, and they took their last breaths believing. In other words, they endured until the very end. The author of Hebrews is telling his readers, be like them, Endure until the end. Die in this faith. Keep going. It's worth it. Endure. Stay faithful. Why? Because Christ is faithful. And he always has been. And he has always, always kept his promises. We know that we sin, right? We know that that we sin daily. Uh, We know that we aren't perfect. We know that we make mistakes. We know uh, that, the, that the, the gospel makes clear to us that there's something inside of us that's not okay, right? We know that we sin, but the promise of the gospel is that there is blood that covers that sin, and we believe it. We put our faith in it. And there's a kingdom that's being prepared for us, a kingdom that we have not seen, but a kingdom that we are certain is real, And we hope for that kingdom where everything will be good, where everything will be right. But until then, we stay faithful. In verse 17, he continues on with Abraham's family. And he says, by Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And you jump ahead to verse 20. It says, by faith, Isaac, he blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed each one of the sons of Joseph. And he worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. These stories that that are mentioned in this passage, they're familiar to many people. They're probably familiar to every person uh, in this room. Even unbelievers know these stories because they're such famous stories. And the reason that they're so familiar is because there's always a task that seems impossible. And Abraham had what would be an impossible task for anyone. God tests his faith and tells him to sacrifice Isaac, a a command that no parent could ever fathom having to do. But also, how can God turn Abraham into a great nation if Isaac, the one who's promised to be a part of that nation, is dead? And we we know just how the story ends. Just before Abraham did what he was told to do, God stopped him and and God provided a ram uh, for a sacrifice in place of Isaac. And I'm sure that Isaac slept with one eye open on every camping trip after that. Uh, but, But what we see is that Abraham was confident. No matter what happened, God would keep his promise. Even though it seemed impossible, even though it didn't make sense, even though he didn't understand why he was being asked to do something so insane, God was going to keep his promise because God is good. And Isaac, even if he died, he would still be a part of this nation and this promise. How? Because God would bring him back to life if necessary. That's what Abraham believed. Verse 19, it says, Abraham considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Faith is confidence for God to do what is impossible for us to do ourselves. 
Some of these, these Hebrew Christians at this time this letter was written, they felt like it was impossible to keep going. And the author is writing this letter saying, hey, you know what? God, he loves doing the impossible. That's like his thing. That's what he does. Uh, he will give you the strength every single day to keep in this faith. Isaac blessed his children believing the promises of God. Jacob blessed his children while leaning on his staff, uh, the staff that was necessary because he once wrestled with God. So he blessed his children remembering, looking at that staff, knowing why it was there, knowing the great God he served, believing that that great God would keep his promise. Verses 23 through 30 show us how in faith, Moses did not abandon God's people, the very thing that some uh, professing Hebrew Christians were doing at the time. If you remember in chapter 10, in, in verse 25, Paul says, Do not forsake the gathering of the saints, as some are in the habit of doing. So this, this right here, what we're doing, there were Christians who were forsaking it. They were abandoning it. They were saying, this, it's too tough. I don't want to be a part of it. This is causing, causing me too much trouble. So I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it behind. Uh, and so he's, he's been telling them, the ones who are thinking about doing this, don't do it because look at Moses. Like Moses stayed with God's people when he could have had a seat at Pharaoh's table. Moses had the opportunity to have everything he could have wanted, to have the easiest life, the most rich life he could have had, but he didn't choose that. He chose to sit in the dirt instead. He chose to suffer with God's people, believing in faith that God had something better for them. And living in hope for that, the walls of Jericho came down, but before the walls came down, the men who marched around those walls, they believed it would come down. They marched in faith knowing God would keep his promise. They trusted God to do it, something they hadn't seen yet. Rahab the prostitute, she protected the spies that were God's people because she had faith in God and that God was good and that he was trustworthy. Verse 32, he says, what, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. What he's saying here is, look, the list of faithful people is long, and that's a good thing. It should be long, and it's good for you that it's a good thing. It goes on and on and on, and it's good because you will always have someone that you can look to as an example. There's always going to be an example in Scripture for us to say, Wow, they, they were faithful. If they were faithful, I can be faithful too. And he works through this whole list, pointing these Hebrew Christians, like you, you want to go back to the Old Testament, you want to go back to those practices, but don't do that. Just look to the faithfulness of those who lived in that time and now do that same thing with Christ. You know, I think I've worked through that list with pretty good time. There's some pastors that would still be on Cain and Abel right now. And... <laughs> The idea of lunch would just be completely out, out the window for you. Um, but I, I've, I've often heard this passage referred to uh, as the heroes of the faith. And I'm not sure how helpful it is calling them heroes because we look at these famous names in Scripture. Uh, we call them heroes, and it sort of feels like they have some kind of super faith that we'll just never be quite good enough to obtain, that we just aren't quite capable of having. I think it's important when we read this list that we remember they were still human. Like they, they were sinners just like everyone in this room is a sinner. 
Noah, if you remember, after the flood, he got drunk after the flood. And he was guilty for that. Abraham had a pattern of lying and deceitfulness. Isaac followed in that same exact pattern, sinning in the exact same way Abraham did. Jacob was as deceitful a person as they could come. He deceived his own dad many times. Sarah was harsh to her servant. Moses, he murdered a man. Rahab was a prostitute. David, he used his position as king to sleep with someone who wasn't his wife and then killed her husband so that he could cover it up. Be certain, these people were not perfect. They were in need of grace, just like you and I are in need of grace. Their faith wasn't perfect, but their faith endured. And there's a reason this passage focuses on their faith, because that is the only way to be saved. They believed God. They trusted Him. It wasn't perfect faith. Just like all of us, their faith was doing this their whole life. Sometimes it was messy. Sometimes it was ugly. Many times they failed and they came up short daily, but they endured and they kept the faith and they trusted in God. And I think that it's important we know that when their faith fell short, God never let up his grace. It can be easy to feel like, ah, I messed up today. Like, I wasn't good enough today. Maybe God's grace isn't going to be there for me anymore. God never let up his grace for his people. He has a cup running over with grace for his people. Always willing to let us, to drink, willing to let us drink from that cup when we need I want you to take a minute and, and think about something that you're not good at. Just any, any kind of task, any kind of hobby, anything at all, something you're not good at. Why are you not good at it? Probably because you haven't had someone to show you. So I'm, I'm not a car guy at all. If you know me at all, you know that that's true. If you want to prank someone, just send me to fix something on their car and... <laughs> that'd be a pretty good prank uh, if you wanted to. You may have seen that my Civic is missing its right, uh, the right mirror by the right door. Um, I hit a trash can, but that's a story, that's a story for another day. Um, I, I could not tell you the first step to fixing that mirror. It's, that's just the truth. Uh, and, and me and my brother, and we kind of joke around with my dad because he wasn't a car guy either, so we didn't learn from him. So we always just have to pay to have things fixed. Uh, and, uh, so, so, but my dad, he, he wasn't a car guy. Why? Because his dad wasn't around to teach him how to do that. And, and that pattern sort of goes on and on. Um, and, uh, in, in our faith, it's different. Like this passage is showing us there will always be someone to learn from. Like even if, if you are the only Christian in your family, if you have no, like no Christian friends, I mean, we, we have our church community here, but if you ever find yourself in a place where there are just no believers around you to look to for guidance, you will always have the people in this list. You will always have the followers of Christ in the New Testament. There will always, always be somebody that you can look to to learn from. I encourage you, if there's not someone in, in your life right now that you feel that way with, I encourage you to find somebody that you can look to. Find a person in your life that you can learn from, someone who has endured, someone who has stayed faithful in the good times and in the bad times. You know, you know how Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ? Find someone who is following Christ faithfully, someone who is enduring, and follow them in that faith. 
But even if you can't, even if you feel like you haven't found that person, you still have Scripture. You still have God's Word that has illuminated for us today the people who went on before us, the people who were faithful before. This chapter, it it closes uh, in verse 11. It says, All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that they would not be made perfect without us. They pleased God with their faith in Him, but they never saw Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They hoped for Him. They believed that He would come. They trusted God. And He says for us, we today, because we have Christ, we've been provided something better because we know Him. He has come. And and He says an interesting thing here. He says the ancestors would not be made perfect without us. You might read that and go, what, what does that mean, like made perfect? It doesn't mean perfect like perfection, like the way we typically uh, use perfect. It means their faith would not be realized or fulfilled without us, the believers in this room. In other words, our faith in Jesus Christ who has come, it validates their faith in the hope of an unseen Messiah. They fix their eyes on a coming Messiah. We fix our eyes on Jesus Christ who has come. And at the center of their faith, at the center of our faith, is a Lord who loves his people. A Lord who saves his people. A Lord who keeps his promises. And I'll close in with the first three verses of chapter 12. Uh, chapter 11 doesn't really wrap up on its own. I think the first three verses of chapter 12 close it well. It says, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of faithful believers who trusted God, who have seen their faith to the very end, and we can do that same thing. And the call for us today, I think, in really this whole passage, and wrapped up here in these first three verses, fix our eyes on Jesus. That's it. Fix your eyes on Christ. Whether you're in a good season or a hard season, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because the moment you look away, you're only relying on yourself. And we can't do it on our own. We need him. I remember through middle school and high school uh, especially, I used to spend many nights, many nights afraid that I just wasn't saved. And I had made a profession. I I believed. And looking back, I know that that was real. But I spent many nights worried about it, begging God to save me if I hadn't been, worried that I I made some mistake, uh, that somehow meant I wasn't really a Christian. And there are times when I still feel that way. And any time that I have struggled with that or I struggle with it now, it's always because I'm looking at myself. But the moment I fix my eyes on Jesus Christ, I know that I am saved. I know that I'm forgiven. I know his blood covers me. I know I have hope. I know he is good. And even though I fail, I know I'm his. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're thankful for the passage 
uh, that shows us that we have ancestors in this faith, though not with perfect faith, they had enduring faith. I ask that you would help us this morning to follow in their footsteps and to endure in this faith. Lord, if someone doesn't know you, we ask that you would add them to your kingdom today. In Jesus' name, amen.